30 seconds to go. It's important to get some excitement into the meditation, otherwise it sometimes gets too boring. 20, 15, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, Welcome. We have liftoff. <laughs> okay, so um, today I was going to tell a couple of stories, all with big meaning to, behind them, that when I was a, still a student, I'd been practicing meditation for quite a few years, and then I remember hearing this amazing talk one of the first Waysak um, talks I'd ever heard. And that was, I think, from Dr. Uh, Sadatissa. And it told us a story about the Buddha's enlightenment and just how that he sat down and he made this resolution. Even though my bones turn to dust, even though my blood dries up, I will not move from this spot until I get full enlightenment. It's one of those occasions when they say enlightenment or bust. And I was only, how old was I? I think 18 years of age at this time. And then I thought, well, you know, there's certain advantages I have which the Buddha didn't have. I had a good education. I came from a Western country. I was, um, what else was I? I don't know. But anyway, I thought with what we call the arrogance of youth. If the Buddha could do it, well, why not me? And I also I had a lot of urgency in my practice. I had many other things to do in my life. I wanted to get enlightenment out of the way as soon as possible so I could get on with other things. <laughs> it's a busy life. And so after the talk, I remember this so clearly, after that talk uh, in our Buddhist society in Cambridge, then I went back to my room and I arranged my cushions. And having arranged my cushions, I sat down and before I closed my eyes, I made my resolution. I will not, I was serious, I will not move from this cushion until I've got full enlightenment or the bones dry up and the blood, so the bones turn to dust and the blood dries up. I was really serious. In those days, maybe 25 minutes, 20 minutes, that was my max. But you know, I was, a, I was a young man in a hurry. So I thought, we'd give it a bit of extra oomph and I'm sure that something might happen. It was amazing that something did happen. I failed. <laughs> After 40 minutes, I was in such agony. So I had to open my eyes. And when I looked, guess what? My blood was still, hadn't dried up yet. Bones hadn't turned to dust. 
and you sort of realize the problem with arrogance, wanting. So sometimes, how many days of the retreat have gone by? How many left? Two or three? It's not many, is it? All these days have gone past. Soon you'll have to leave. Oh my goodness. What have you been doing? How far have you come? Oh my. So sometimes, at this time of the retreat, you think, it's only two or three days to go. Okay, no messing around now. I'm just going to sit. So, Crystal, sitting in the front. That's the trouble being in the front. You're noticeable. So you can sit very still. Forget about lunch. Forget about going to bed tonight. You sit there and don't move until your blood dries up, your bones tend to dust, so you get full enlightenment. Is that a cool thing? Is it a good thing to do? <laughs> so you've got to show by example. <laughs> but you can see just how much wanting is in that. And of course it took many years to know to realize that that wanting, that's what the Buddha said, that's the second noble truth. Don't call it craving, because uh, some of these translations sometimes I just really kind of kind of upset me in the sense that you have this in the second noble truth that the cause of suffering and the rebirth and everything is a dunha, but it means more than craving. Craving is an intense form of wanting. Even small forms of wanting stop you being still and stop you being content. Have you noticed in the chanting which we do, especially the ones we do in English, to be content and easily satisfied, not proud and demanding in nature? Have you been demanding what you want? Is the food good enough? Is it hot enough? Is, is it served on the right time? Is your hut um, quiet enough? All the people you share your heart with, are they quiet enough? Should we have a blacklist of people who snore during the meditation? <laughs> or, should, or, or, you know what happens sometimes? People complain about this in the questions. I haven't heard it yet, so you're probably pretty good. They complain that somebody who always likes to have uh, a cup of tea or coffee at you know, one or two o'clock in the morning, they don't mind them having a cup of tea and coffee, but when they put some milk in it... <laughs> and they wake everybody up! <laughs> Can't you at least stir a cup of tea or coffee, if that's what you need, quietly and mindfully? And there's also the person who they keep banging their door. Is that a problem in your hut? A couple of people are saying yes. If they are, just try this reflection. If the door bangs in your hut, how long does the sound last for? Usually about 15, 20 minutes. The echo in your head. Why did they 
bang that door. They've got no right to bang the door. I'm trying to get to sleep. Don't they know how serious I am about getting meditation? Then they go banging doors. We, I'm going to tell Ajahn Brahm about this. We have a blacklist of people who, we, we give them a room to stay and out of compassion, we won't have any doors on them. <laughs> or something. And straight away, the biggest noise is not the noise of the door banging but how it resonates and reverberates in your brain, sometimes hours, days afterwards. That's one of the reasons why. Please, whenever there is any problem in your meditation or in your life here, please use the wisdom. Wisdom can solve problems. Anger makes them much worse. So anyway, so that when you are meditating there, the kindness is also important, as important as the stillness. If you don't have any kindness, any softness, any ability to be, oh, what is it like, the simile of like a guitar string? I don't know if you've ever played a guitar before, maybe a violin, I don't care which type of string. If that string is stretched and really tight, Something hits it, bing, and it makes a very loud sound. If you loosen the tension and something hits it, the same thing, bing, it makes a sound, but not as loud and not as like jarring. And when that string is perfectly loose and at ease, it's got no tension on either end, something hits it makes no sound at all. It doesn't reverberate. And that's like your mind. Your mind, when it's really relaxed and peaceful, anything which impinges upon it, a banging door, a someone stirring in something into their teacup, or someone coughing, it doesn't really disturb you because you're really relaxed and you know you have this ability to be able to observe and hear but nothing disturbs you. So that's what we're trying to come to. Not by being tired, I'm gonna get in line no matter what and don't anyone disturb me. Okay? You can put a sign up on your door in your cottage. This is my enlightenment day, please be quiet. <laughs> you can bang the doors tomorrow but not tonight. <laughs> so, instead of that, you know, we have this other way of meditating, of, yes, no, there'll be always disturbances, no matter where you go. You can't find the perfect place. Or can you? The perfect place is not a physical place of quiet. The perfect place is where you surround it with the mental softness of kindness. There's this one gentleman in one of these retreats which I taught years ago, he told me that he had this, uh, this problem and I should have let everybody know. I didn't, that's my mistake. But then when the meditation, first day of meditation, the question time, there's almost you know, half the questions were the same question. Ajahn Brahm, can you please ask people to meditate or to breathe quietly? 
because he was going <laughs> all the time. And it really disturbed people. But then I announced that that gentleman had a big tumour in his sinuses. His doctors had given him all the treatment they knew. And now, you know, he would, they gave up on him. Just you now a few weeks before that tumour would be so big that he would die. He decided to try a meditation retreat, just in case. People hear that meditation can do all sorts of amazing things, so he thought he would give it a go. And when I told everybody the reason why he was breathing so loudly, there was no more complaints at all, but a lot of kindness and compassion to that gentleman. It's wonderful that you may have, we have a negative fault-finding mind, but when you have some kindness and compassion, it takes all that problem away. So, if anybody in your hut is very noisy, there's no need to sort of get angry at them or upset at them. Instead, be compassionate towards them. The poor person, they must be sick. They must be going through a lot of difficult times in their life. And when you have that compassion, that kindness, the sound doesn't disturb you anymore. It's just part of life. You don't, ex don't expect perfection. I remember just even when I was teaching these prisoners in one of the prisons, that one of the, they were just meditating there, one of the prisoners started snoring. And then everybody sort of opened their eyes, and one of the prisoners said, Ajahn Brahm, can you t please tell everybody to keep quiet, not to snore when they're meditating? And I said, that was you who was snoring. <laughs> You're the one who heard yourself. One of the best times I was in jail, well, wasn't because this was in um, Canning Vale jail, it was a high security jail, so I always had to have a prison officer with you, and you know, all the time. And so when I was teaching the meditation to a group of prisoners, only about six or seven of them, now with this prison officer there. You know the way I teach sometimes, and many of you say you listen to my talks, it helps you go to sleep at night. That's what happened to that prison officer. They were teaching meditation and somebody started snoring. It wasn't one of the prison it wasn't one of the prisoners. It was a prison officer. <laughs> I was very fortunate I opened my eyes, because one of the prisoners close to the prison officer, already had his hand out there and was about to, to, <laughs> to get the keys. <laughs> and when he saw me looking at him, he said, oh, I want to bob, sport my fun. <laughs> <clears throat> but anyhow, just, so, uh, trying to get enlightened through the wrong ways, you're just totally wasting your time. So instead, can you have a feeling for what these freedoms of enlightenment really are. There's one of the stories, the famous story, about the meaning of enlightenment. I don't know if you remember that, but again, when I say that I don't know if you remember that, you know I'm going to tell it anyway. Because I like telling the story. And it just emphasizes a very important point of Dhamma. 
if any of you ever read the suttas, you can see the same teaching comes up again and 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 again, like the Four Noble Truths. How many times does the Buddha teach that? Again, 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 again. In those days, people wouldn't complain to the Buddha, you're teaching the same thing all over again, again, and again, and again, and again. They complained to me about that. <laughs> Unfair. <laughs> but anyway, it's nice to be able to have an understanding, a clear understanding of what enlightenment is. And this was a story which, uh, to me, gives that best indication. One you can understand and also one which explains some other parts of, of Dhamma. So you get even closer to an understanding of what this life is all about. And that was the old story of the five children playing the wishing game. Five children just messing around in the afternoon, and they said, let's play the wishing game. The wishing game goes like this. The rules are, each kid has a wish, and a kid which comes up with the best wish wins a wishing game. So the first child said, if I had a wish, I'd wish for a new computer game. I don't know what's the best uh, computer games. So what's the best computer game now? Can I confess? Well, you must look at computer games. I don't. I've got a clue what they are. So you confess, your mum won't sort of get upset at you. <laughs> or maybe she will, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so he chose a computer game, a really modern new one, very hard to get. So if he had a wish, he would ask for this computer game. Very good. Ask the second kid, if you had a wish, what would it be? And she said, if I had a wish, I would wish for a computer game shop. If I own the shop... I could get another computer game any time I wanted, the latest one which comes out. That's much better than the first wish, just having a computer game, have the whole shop. And so the third kid said, I can do better than that. Because the problem with you, when you like playing computer games is that your mummy won't let you do it until you finish your homework. So this kid said, well, instead of a computer game shop, I would ask, my wish would be for $10 billion. US, of course, not Australian. Australian dollar's going down, isn't it? Okay. Going down is very good. It's much more humble than going up. <laughs> Monks look at things in a totally different way. So, $10 billion US. And for $10 billion US, the first thing I would buy is a computer game shop, so I can play computer games. But the problem is, my, again, my mum will never let me play until I've finished all my homework. So the second thing I'll buy is my own school. And if I own the school, and if I employ the principal and all the other teachers, I'll sack them if they don't give me top marks. <laughs> That's my right. So I'll... I will have my own school, and then when I graduate from my own high school, then what will I do? I'll buy my own university. And if I own the university, again, I can get in there, and I don't have to do any work. Because, you know, in universities, they have things called honorary degrees. 
So, you know, you can get sort of the university to give you an honorary degree. So you don't have to do any work. And you can spend all your time playing computer games. And with $10 billion, it's sure that when you need something else, you always find, you know, you always got lots of money to, uh, to buy something else. And if your mum doesn't like it still, you can always bribe your mum. <laughs> Mom, you don't have to work anymore, I'll look after you, as long as you, <laughs> you keep letting me play computer games. So anyway, the $10 billion wish is winning so far. The fourth wish, this kid said, if I had a wish, I would wish for three wishes. That's a wish. For my first wish, I'll have the computer game shop. Second wish, I'll have the $10 billion US. For the third wish, I'll have three more wishes. <laughs> that way I can go on forever, beat that. And the last kid beat that wish so easily. The fifth kid, a very quiet kid, had a bald head and was very wise. <laughs> Said if I had a wish, I wish I was so content, I never needed a wish ever again. That's the Buddha. It's a wonderful little explanation about what enlightenment is. So content, you don't need any wishes anymore. Ending of craving and desire. And the fourth wish is, yes, you may have lots and lots of money, but this is infinity of wishes granted. That's what we call the, the desire for power. That answered a question which I, I found a long time, found it difficult to find a solution to. Why is it that very wealthy people like to join politics and become sort of prime ministers or presidents? And the reason is they have lots of money, but they still don't have the power to enjoy it. If they're the head of state, or Prime Minister or something, then they can get whatever they want, whenever they want it. That's one of the reasons why very wealthy people often just join politics, because just being a billionaire is not enough. So anyway, but it's a beautiful simile of just the ending of all desire. Freedom from desire, peace, was the highest happiness. So anyway, I became a monk. <laughs> and when I became a monk, I was practicing very hard. I wanted to tell you the story today, for those who haven't heard it. The story of when I became enlightened. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> I said it. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> okay, here it goes. My <laughs> You know there's a trick to this, don't you? It was my fourth range retreat. And it was you know, in a part of northeast Thailand, which was very poor, and very simple, about six monks in this monastery, and I was one of those. And there's nothing much to do there. So there's lots and lots of opportunity for meditation and meditation and meditation. And when you meditate so much, you're sure to get more and more calm 
more and more still, more and more energy. So I was meditating a lot. And when it came to one evening, even though many of the other monks would go to bed, I was still meditating. And I was doing the walking meditation. Now somebody asked me, is walking meditation okay? It's great walking meditation. It was while I was walking meditation that all these insights started to come. When the first ones start to come and they just really inspire you, because they inspire you, they make you more and more aware, more energy and more insights come. I was having a wonderful time seeing all these things which I'd never seen before. And then, and then, the big insight came. Wow. And that was the end of any sloth and torpor, any tiredness that night. You were just blissed, you know, everywhere. Blissed, I was going to say blissed to my boots, but I don't wear boots, but sandals all over, just amazing, beautiful energy coming up. At last, seeing the Dhamma. Oh, just what joy and what bliss. And so I was going to about two o'clock, uh, in the morning, this is. The bell there goes at three o'clock, you know, for the wake-up bell for the monastery. So I thought I'd better go and just lay down to stretch my body, only for half an hour, no sleep, it's just too much energy. And then so I got back up and I went to the hall and I was sitting there very peacefully when the bell went in the morning. I was up there before anybody else and I was meditating. Meditating so easy, I hadn't slept all night, but the mind was just so powerful, so joyful. And when we did our morning chanting, you know the chanting we do here, you know, the uh, you know, Yo, So, Bhagavad, sometimes in the morning, the chanting may be difficult if you hadn't had a good sleep that night. Sometimes you hear, Yes, oh, But that morning, Yo, so Bhagavad, you're just so full of energy. The other monks had to, too, to calm down a bit. You just burst it with energy. And then just after the chanting, a bit more meditation, then getting ready to go on the arms round in the morning. And the arms round, that was really blissful. As I was walking there, those villagers, they didn't know that they were putting arms food into the bowl of a new enlightened being. Zap! I was zapping everybody in that village as they went past. They didn't realize their good luck. And I had just so much energy and joy. And when I came back to the monastery after the arms round, usually we only get sort of rice on the arms round, maybe a banana if we're lucky, but nothing else. It is the main part of the meal. It's usually uh, made by the people who come into the monastery. And it's usually always the same food, a rotten fish curry, pladek. And that rotten fish curry, it was rotten fish. They'd catch it the year before, you know, in the paddy fields. They'd put it in a jar with a piece of plastic on the top and they'd let it sort of ferment. And that was their usual dish, rotten fish curry, pladek. And I remember once 
just you know, helping clean up around the kitchen as a monk, you know, just tidying things up. And I found one of these jars and the, the plastic on the top had been broken. So the flies had got in there and it was all crawling with maggots. So I went to throw it away. You know what happened? The headman of the village was there. He was the most educated, refined, intelligent man in the whole village. And he asked me, what are you doing? I said, it's got maggots in it. I'm throwing it away. He said, no, that's extra protein. <laughs> and that's what we ate the next day. <laughs> so you got used to it because that's all you had. Rotten fish curry and sticky rice. But this day, the morning of my enlightenment, there were two pots. I'm not exaggerating this, it's two pots. I think the only time in the whole range of tree we had more than one pot of curry. And that one, you know, I was a vegetarian before I became a monk, I had to give that up because in some of these places there was no vegetarian food. So this other food which they had there was a pork curry. I don't know where that had come from, never seen one before. And that was actually edible. I'm not saying it's delicious, but it's like edible. <laughs> and I thought, where's this come from? And then I realized, even in the time of the Buddha, heavenly beings would also like to make merit and good karma. And they thought they probably got this pot of delicious curry so they could make merit too with a new enlightened Western monk. And so I thought, oh yes, well done. So when you got your bowl ready and you're preparing for the meal, what they did there is you didn't help yourself. It was offered to the, the first monk, the senior monk, then passed down the line. And I was the second in the line there then, four years as a monk, mostly junior monks there. So the head monk, he was a local boy. He grew up in that area. You know, I kind of thought that because he grew up in the area, he would really like the rotten fish curry. Well, what this monk did, he just ignored the rotten fish curry and he took these enormous ladles of, uh, of curry from the, the pork curry, I mean, really big ones. No one could eat that much. And slopped it over the sticky rice. Once he'd taken about three enormous, like, buckets. <laughs> they were only ladles, but that's what it looked like. And put it in his bowl then I was ready to receive it myself so I can get you know, my uh, enlightenment celebratory meal. <laughs> you know what he did? <coughs> he picked up the rotten fish curry, just taking the whole heap from himself, and he poured it into the rotten fish curry. <laughs> he stirred it up and he said, it's all the same, it's all the same. You guess what I thought? I thought, if it was all the same, why didn't you take yours first? Why didn't you mix them up first of all, instead of taking yours first and then mixing it all up? I've missed my, my beautiful celebratory enlightenment meal. <laughs> and then I realised, if you're enlightened and you have no more craving, no more attachments, <laughs> you don't mind what you eat. And oh my goodness, that was really depressing. If you think you're enlightened and you find out you're not. 
That really ruined my day. <laughs> so afterwards, I didn't mind what I ate. I just slopped something into my bowl and just, I was just so disappointed I found out I wasn't enlightened after all. <laughs> well, I was very lucky. I sometimes why these things happen at all? Because it's the only day in the whole three-month range retreat we got pork curry. And every day else we had the same every day. It's as if like those heavenly beings were trying to teach me a lesson. John Brown, you're not enlightened yet. <laughs> but what it did, it gave me this wonderful uh, reflection, just how easy it is to feel you are enlightened. What's happened there is many of those defilements have disappeared for a while, but they come back again. Your meditation has suppressed them, and they're very peaceful, and you think you're not, they're not there. That's one of the reasons why when you say a person thinks is adamant they're a stream winner, you cannot really know for sure if you are a stream winner or once return, non-return it, fully in line, but you can know that you're not. That's an easy thing to see. And that's one of the reasons why that uh, if anybody believes they're a stream winner or a once returner or an arahat or something. Okay, you know these stories anyway, so I was hesitant. Should I let you know these stories? Because uh, it's the way we find out if what you think is true or not. And that was the story of this um, monk. He was in the Chinese tradition. And he asked, his, he'd been a monk for about five or six years. And so he really wanted to give it everything he got and really just go into solitude so he can give 100% attention and effort to you know, breaking through to full enlightenment. So what he did, he asked the abbot of this monastery, not far from here, there's a lake. And in the middle of the lake is an uninhabited island. Can I go and build a very simple hut in there? In those days, you could build simple huts because there was no building surveyor, planning officer, health and safety officer. In other words, you didn't have so many regulations to keep. This is a little simple hut, so you got permission. Built a nice little kuti, they call them, little hut for monks. And he told the abbot, it's ready now, I'm going to go into seclusion on this island. All I ask is that once a week you send an attendant in the boat rowing over to this island and so he can bring me supplies for the week. And anything I need, I'll let him know and he'll bring it the next week. And the other said, oh yes, it's a good idea. Look, how can you refuse somebody who really wants to put all the effort, 100%, into becoming enlightened. So off he went. And every day he would meditate. He would rest when he was resting, get some food, not much. And he was practicing diligently. And after about three years, he thought he'd cracked it. He thought he was another enlightened being in the world. So, what to do next? He sent this, this message with the attendant. 
Oh, no, can he please have, next week, a quill pen, the old-fashioned pens, some ink, and a parchment. He wanted to write some calligraphy. You know, the sort of Chinese culture was really strong on calligraphy. Even at the Buddhist Fellowship, that's the Singapore group which I support, that once they were doing some sort of fundraising celeb celebration, and so they invited the uh, president at that time. She was a, a Muslim lady to this Buddhist ceremony. She was very, very, very nice. But they decided to do some calligraphy. And they wanted me to do the first bit of calligraphy. And they taught me how to do it. I'm not an idiot monk, sometimes, but not all the time. And so I did this little bit of calligraphy. And then they invited the Muslim president of Singapore to actually to do some calligraphy. And she turned to me and said, I'm not an expert, I'm not like you, highly trained. And I couldn't help, <laughs> almost stop laughing. <laughs> I just learned it that day. <laughs> but anyway, calligraphy is one of those things which is highly prized art form. So anyway, this monk, once he received the parchment, the ink, and the quill pen, he went into his heart and he meditated really deeply. Because his aim was to write something both profound in its meaning and beautiful in its, uh, in its form. To show the abbot that he completed the job and he was another enlightened monk. So when he came out of meditation, he picked up the quill pen dipped it in the ink, and wrote this poem in four lines. And it read, this was a translation, he wrote it in Chinese. It transla translated as, The diligent monk in solitude for three years is no longer moved by the four worldly winds. And that's a euphemism which they, they use very often in the suttas. Not uh, moved by the four worldly winds means you're totally still immovable, you're fully enlightened. And he wrote it just such incredibly beautiful calligraphy that you can only do when you're really so still and peaceful and, and then you come out to write that stuff. So he let it dry, he rolled up the parchment found a little bit of cloth and did a nice bow. And then he waited for the attendant to come on his next visit, gave it to the attendant and said, please present this to the abbot. And then all week he relaxed, just wondering you know, what he would do next, now he's enlightened. And then the abbot, the attendant came. And the attendant said, here is a gift from the abbot. And it looked like his old parchment. It looked exactly the same. So excitedly, he went into his room. He unfurled the parchment. He unrolled it. You know what? That abbot had scrawled in red ink the first line, 
the diligent monk is scrawled in there the four letters F A R T. Fart. And the second line, <laughs> in solitude for three years, there was another four letters, this time in capitals, F-A-R-T. <laughs> it's no longer moved. Another F-A-R-T in red ink, underlined <laughs> by the four worldly winds. This time a huge F-A-R-T Three lines underneath and three exclamation marks. <laughs> My goodness, <laughs> that monk was irate. This was like a work of art, a timeless piece of calligraphy and poetry by someone who's just been enlightened. It should be in a museum, not ruined like this. So he got up from his seat, rushed outside. He could manage to shout at the attendant who was rowing back to the monastery. He said, come back, take me to see that abbot. And that's what the attendant did. So they got back to the other side of the shore and just went to see the abbot. And this monk, this hermit monk, slammed the document on the table. What have you done to this beautiful document? And the abbot very slowly stood up he unfurled the document and read it to the hermit monk. The diligent monk, in solitude for three years, is no longer moved by the four worldly winds. <laughs> Yet, monk, four little farts <laughs> have blown you clean across the lake. And the monk realised what has happened. Okay, so he went back to the island, spent another few years there before he could really get enlightened. And that's one of the problems with sort of the idea of enlightenment. We take it as an achievement rather than a disappearance. That's where you've got to be very careful. So, it's one of the stories which... I remember the previous king of Thailand... King Rama the Ninth, he said this was one of his favourite similes from the Buddha. And that was a shipwrecked sailor simile. He said there were seven sailors. It didn't say in the simile of the Buddha it was a shipwrecked sailor. It just said seven uh, sailors in the middle of the ocean, in the water, no ship. So it just, obviously it must have been a shipwreck or something. So there's seven sailors. The first sailor, you know, is in the water, he keeps himself afloat for a few minutes, but then he sinks. He sinks down. They say, that's the person who's got bad karma. They can't keep afloat. They sink and die. The second shipwrecked sailor, you know, he manages to stay up, but then he sinks down. Then he can get up again, then he sinks down. Eventually he gets so exhausted, he sinks down and drowns. That's the one who's got a mix of good karma and bad karma, but a lot of bad karma so eventually drowns. The third shipwrecked sailor, he manages to stay up, he manages to float. Someone with good karma. They can keep their head above water in the difficulties of life. They don't sink down so much. That was the third shipwrecked sailor. And the fourth shipwrecked sailor is like a subset of the third. Can stay up afloat for long enough, 
and will look around. And that fourth shipwrecked sailor, as he's looking around, sees his dry land over there. It's a ways away, but you can see dry land. Safety. That's the stream winner. You know, you've seen just how you can... Uh, escape is a good word. Escape from, you know, the suffering of constant rebirth. There's a way out. And the fifth shipwrecked sailor... Again, a subset of the fourth, you see the escape, and now you're swimming towards that shore. As I said earlier, when you see the escape, it's an event. You can see, oh, that's what I should be doing. That's where there's a way out of this suffering. And of course, you know, you will start swimming uh, to the shore. It doesn't actually say how far you're close to the shore or... Uh, away from the shore, what qualifies as a, a once-returner, that's very, that is not an event, much more like just your the liability probabilities. And then that shipwrecked sailor, the fifth type, who's swimming towards the shore, gets so close to the shore that he can put his legs down and he can feel dry land underneath. He's so close, he doesn't need to swim anymore, he can start wading to the shore. That's called the sixth shipwrecked sailor, and that is the non-returner. You're really close, you can feel dry land underneath. And the seventh shipwrecked sailor, the last, he's reached dry land, and he's sitting under a nice coconut tree, having a delicious cup of tea with condensed milk. <laughs> Or whatever else you like. That's only what I add to it. Buddha never said that. <laughs> I'm honest with you know what Buddha said or what he didn't say. But anyway, that idea of like seeking safety, that was a beautiful simile of the Buddha, and that's actually can kind of understand, you know, what these things are, and in particular, it is. Uh, what is the biggest hindrance? They call it a fetter, a sort of a, a wrong view, which you abandoned when you were a stream winner. What actually do you see? What is the problem? And the main problem is, and what one sees as a stream winner, is this idea of a self. There's no one in here. All these things you take to be you. If you look at it, you know, sometimes, you know, who are you? Are you a young woman about to go to university? Or are you, oh, I was going to say old, I was say middle-aged like your mother. <laughs> I'll get into trouble. Are you a nun? Are you a fat monk? I'm not a fat monk. My body is fat, but not me. That's my excuse. You know, I was telling many people, I, I think I did tell you this when the question time, that sometimes when you are meditating, sometimes your perception gets free from its uh, restrictions. That's one of the reasons sometimes, I mentioned this perception once, that it's a very clear one, that's why I keep mentioning it. I was going past the washing area for the monks next to the, the well in uh, a monastery in Thailand. And I saw a towel on the line drying, and it was black towel. 
not a dirty towel, but really jet black, like, like coal black all over. And I've never seen in any shop, have you ever seen any shop these days, black towels? Yeah, they do have them, do they? Okay, I've seen pink ones, white ones, yellow ones, striped ones, but never actually jet black. That's the first time I've ever seen one. And I thought, no, which monk has got a black towel? And as I was watching it, you know, my eyes were fully open. I wasn't sleepy, it's the middle of the day. And then after about five minutes, that black towel went white. It was just a white towel now. And that's how it stayed. It always was a white towel. But somehow my perception could actually interpret it in a totally different way. It was black. It was weird, but I read about that in the suttas sometimes. You can do that. Why does your perception have to always be interpreting things in one way? I mentioned that with you know, the contents of a toilet bowl and so much else. You can, you can see it whatever way you want to. Your perception gets free from its bounds. So anyway, that's what happens sometimes that sometimes people imagine, they're not really levitating, but it feels like you're rising up into the air or you're sinking into the ground. Or this one time, I imagined I was expanding. And that's when someone disturbed me. And I opened my eyes and I got stuck this way. As a monk, you have all sorts of nice excuses. You know the other excuse I have for you know being uh, robust in this area it was that was that I've been a monk for forty-eight years now. It's a long time being a monk. Every year you're a monk, you grow in kindness. Compassion keeps on growing. And they have this simile in the West that kindness is like having a big heart, like you're a big-hearted person. So I got so big-hearted, even early on as a monk, my heart got so big it started pressing against my ribcage. <laughs> and it's just science. Where else could it go? It went down and out here. <laughs> this is not fat, this is just a big heart. <laughs> At least they're original excuses, <laughs> just excuses. But nevertheless, um, oh, the other thing about that, which is important, is I, I did sometimes wonder why it is that fat people are always very jovial and happy. You take one of my people I always looked up to as a kid, like a mentor for me, was Santa Claus. He was always very fat, he was always very jovial, and he was old when I was young and he's still going. <laughs> he's, he's ageless. <laughs> and the other one was, I don't know if you remember this, do they still have like that uh, movies about Robin Hood? And they had Friar Tuck. Friar Tuck was one of Robin Hood's assistants. He was supposed to be a priest, so he could get access to the sheriff of Nottingham's castle whenever he wanted. But Friar Tuck, he was always very big as well, very fat. And those are the two people I look up to, because <laughs> they were always very happy. 
And this is something which I, took me years to find out, but I remember reading in uh, a medical journal that if you are miserable, fed up, angry, depressed, then your blood vessels contract. They get smaller. So if you're fat and depressed and upset, you get what we call in science, the beautiful science term, of the double whammy. <laughs> you're fat, so you've got lots of cholesterol, and you're depressed, which means your arteries and veins get very small. So of course they block up. So you don't, you don't live very long. But if you are fat and you're very, very happy, you tell lots and lots of silly jokes, then of course your arteries are so wide, anything can go through. It's like a superhighway. Even big trucks, they don't get congested. That's the, re that's the reason. If you are a little bit overweight, please crack some jokes. It keeps you alive. And that reminded me just early, earlier when we were coming in here. You know, I would say, you go in first. And they said, no, no, you go in first. It reminded me of the story of this very high-class English woman. And you now she got pregnant, but, you know, she always kept the old stiff upper lip. She never really told anybody. So after nine months, and she was getting a bit fat, she never told anybody. Ten months, hadn't given birth. A year, hadn't given birth. Two years, three years, she forgot about it. And after about, about 20 years or 25 years, you know, she had to see her doctor for some other business. And the doctor said, oh, what's that? And it's, it looks like, you know, that, you know, I can't see the reason why you're so fat in there. And so I decided to do an x-ray uh, and then a, a, they gave a cesarean. And they found out she was pregnant with twins. And after 23 years, these two twins had all both grown up, and these two twins, one was called Percy, the other one was called Claude, and they were well-dressed, like English gentlemen should be dressed, in bowler hats, nice suit, umbrellas. And one was saying to the other, after you, Percy. No, no, after you, Claude. No, it's after you, Percy. No, after you, Claude. <laughs> That's an English joke. Those of you who know English, we have to always be very polite. After you. <laughs> what that does, just like that, keeps you happy. And your, your arteries and blood vessels, they expand. That keeps me alive. So please, thank you for laughing at my joke. It's a great gift you give to me. It means that I can keep living for a few more years. So anyway, the main thing was about teaching a little bit about what enlightenment is. A lot of it is just you disappearing. There's nothing left. That's what I said yesterday about that question of a person who thinks they're a stream winner. Are they or are they not? Usually they'll keep it quiet. And anyway, it's their sense of self is the one which is supposed to have disappeared. So, if they keep saying, yes, I am enlightened, yes, I am a stream winner, that's quite sort of a big indication that they're not. If they've kind of disappeared, 
In other words, they don't think they're anything, then that's much better, that's much closer to the truth. And as you, look, uh, sometimes the who you are is sometimes measured by what you own. Are you a householder? Just like I mentioned the other day when that lady from Centrelink was trying to find out who I was. And I got any ID? No. Your marriage certificate, your credit card, your, um, my cave license, my rental agreement with the Buddhist Society of West Australia. I've got none of that. As they said, you don't exist. Have you ever noticed in this world that you are what you own? That's why people like to have big cars or big houses or many houses. You become what you own. What you possess is who you are. And sometimes possessing your intelligence. That's why I said the other day that one of the little tricks when you're giving a talk with many people, put your hands up if you're above average intelligence. And most people, if they were honest, would put their hand up. We all think that we are above average intelligence. Is that true? Only half of you can be above average intelligence. The rest have to be below average intelligence. Admit it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong, this is average, that's all. It's amazing just how much ego we have. We always want to be above average. And even sometimes I ask your kids, those of you who have children, are your children above average intelligence or below average intelligence? Half of your children will be below average <laughs> intelligence. You're above average intelligence, or below? Your son, he's above or below? Who? My son. Yeah, he's above or below? Above. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, that's the idea that uh, a sense of self gets involved and twists things around. Well, we'd like to believe, but what's not what's actually right there. And that's actually where, that as we become... There's nothing wrong with being below average intelligence. That's why one of those little poems, which I think from Sun Po, uh, about on the birth of my first son. And he said that many parents, when they give birth to a son, they always want their son to grow up intelligent and successful. And Sun Po said, I, through an intelligence, have ruined my whole life. So I only hope that my child turns out to be an idiot and will be far happier than I am. And being an idiot, he's spent a lovely life as a cabinet minister in the government <laughs> and retired very wealthy. <laughs> it's not quite exactly how he said it, but he said it in such a beautiful way <laughs> that sometimes intelligent people don't get far. It's amazing how far stupid people get. <laughs> Have you got a boss at work who's stupid? <laughs> anyway, 
So little by little, we understand just our path to enlightenment is not being anybody. You don't get certificates for enlightenment or any stage of enlightenment. It's like you disappear. Your identification with the body, with the world, with what you have disappears. You're more and more free. I often say that you can be anything you like or anything you don't like when you don't have a fixed sense of self. So who are you? Are you getting bored with who you are? Like to be something different or nothing at all? That's sometimes the best. So little by little we identify less. We own less. We have less to defend. The target on our back gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So no one can hurt us. And someone calls you an idiot and you say, oh, that's right, yes. Are you always smart? Sometimes an idiot? Many times in between? Which one is the right you? One of the last stories. Okay, this is from one of the Nasruddin stories. After Nasruddin taught his students um, a retreat, decided after the end of the retreat, you know, that's, you've all done very well, so I'll take you to the fair to give you some, some um, like benefits, some relaxation. So when he went into the fair, there was a, one of the stalls, like an archery stall. And if you got the bullseye on the archery stall, you could actually win a prize. So Nigerian said, ah, oh, this is easy, I can do this. And then, so they gave him three arrows for, I don't know, three dollars or something. And his first arrow, he pulled the string back and he shot the arrow and it only went about halfway. It was a hopeless shot. And they asked him, he said, do you know really how to shoot an arrow? That's Rudin. His students said to him, imagine if I tried that, shot an arrow. He said, oh, please don't embarrass us, Ajahn Brahm. The people know that we're your students. Now give up right now. And so he said, no, 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 that was the shot of a hasty man. And so then he took his second arrow, and this time he took much more time, and he pulled the, the, the string back further, and he shot the arrow, and it went about a mile to the right. And they said, stop it, let's get out now. He said, no, 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 that was the sh shot of an arrogant man. Okay, one more shot. And this time he pulled the bow back and the, uh, shot the arrow and it went right in the middle of the target. And as he was claiming his prize, his students asked, well, if the first shot was of a, uh, a hasty man, the second shot was one of an arrogant man, who was that third shot? And as Rudin said, that, oh, that was me. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> enough funny stories. <laughs> now we have our interviews. So I wish you a pleasant morning. And we'll do the interviews and then see what happens afterwards. Okay? Very good. Ah. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.